Hi everyone and welcome to Noise Busters. <sighs> I'd like to say a huge thanks to everyone who's supported the show so far. Uh, we're really enjoying making the episodes and it seems that people are enjoying the show, engaging with it and uh, just kind of coming back every time. So that's more than we expected. So that's fantastic. It's been brutally cold here, George, in Calgary, uh, like minus 35 degrees this week, which is a bit too cold to do anything. Um, but I'd, I'd see how you were getting on in old Blighty. Good. It was, it's been uh, 10 degrees this week. So um, it's been nice, nice and uh, toasty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's warming up a bit now. But uh, an amazing thing happened this week for the first time ever. Uh, I was doing, maybe you've done it yourself, is like these pub quiz that you do online, like Skype, Zoom quiz things. And the, there's a local brewery that does one. And normally I'm sat there not really knowing a huge amount. I'm all right on the music rounds. But then I'm always like, well, my speciality is acoustics and it never comes up. And then this <laughs> this week there was four or five questions around acoustics and like sound engineering and stuff. So I was like, I was in my element. I was... You got two of them. believe it. I, yeah, I got <laughs> half of them right. So it, was, <laughs> so it was nice. It was nice to get at least one question right this time. And I think I don't think you can go past the fact that we've both turned up wearing the same shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened there. This isn't like a new uniform or costume. We've not had any like third party recommend that we wear the same outfits yeah we're sponsored by denim shirts <laughs> George has gone for like a, a white shirt underneath I don't know what that's about <laughs> it's because it's cold <laughs> I thought you said it was warm 10 degrees <laughs> relatively <laughs> today's guest started out as a research scientist at the Georgia Tech Research Institute uh, after completing his Bachelor of Science in Physics and a Master in Science in Electrical Engineering at Georgia Tech where he had the honour of studying under uh, Dr. Eugene Patronis and uh, the late Dr. Marshall Leach. Uh, he then actually took over as the owner and CEO of the world's largest loudspeaker manufacturing company from his father. Uh, this loudspeaker company is Eminence, and Eminence has grown hugely over the years and is a purely family-oriented business with also a significant aspects of them. They're basically a big world player in loudspeaker design, manufacturing, distributing to over 90 countries, which is quite a task. Um, Eminence is now 50 years old and still going strong. So we're very pleased to welcome Rob Galt to the show. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Good, Dan. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. How are you over there in Kentucky? It's been cold here as well. Uh, we've been out, had a, like a two-week cold snap and uh, it's finally uh, starting to warm up and this uh, weekend we're supposed to get above freezing and stay there for a few days so looking forward to that texas has been struggling a lot yeah. like power outages and all sorts yeah. of stuff going We've on had down like there. three um, winter storms in a row all going through texas and coming up through kentucky and up to new england so we're ready for spring i think it'd be nice to dive a little bit into your background and, and really find out a little bit about your professional background and talk a bit about the early days of your career and kind of how you got interested in sound because that's something that's been a big part of your career so far and it'd be nice to dig into the kind of whys and hows and I imagine it's quite a convoluted story but we're here to listen so. Well uh, let's see my dad uh, had started Eminence in 1966 I was like six years old and uh between the school and my house, the school that I was going to as a, you know, like second grader, uh, the factory was along that route. And I used to pop in there in the afternoons after school and bump some 
change off dad to get some snacks or something on the way home and uh you know just hanging out in the speaker factory running around uh you know back in those days uh there was not much industrial uh safety programs or anything so little kids running around the factory was not a problem um so i kind of grew up in the speaker factory uh, dad used to sometimes do uh, science experiments with me. We'd make gunpowder and burn it on the floor of the tool room in the factory and stuff like that. So uh, just spent a lot of time out there. And then uh, when I got to high school, I started uh, uh, working there in the summers, uh, just on the assembly line, putting speakers together. And um, then I decided I wanted, you know, I always knew I wanted to get a, a degree in uh, a college degree and uh, my dad had uh, studied physics and it seemed like he knew everything that he needed to know uh, to run the factory and to build speakers and design them and so forth so i uh, i decided i would go for a physics degree and i applied to uh, about six different schools and five of them were up north and i went up to rochester to institute of technology there to for a uh, like weekend introduction thing they offered and it was snowing uh horizontally all weekend and about you know 50 mile an hour snowing blow snow blowing snow and i decided this is not for me so i had applied to one school down south and that was georgia tech so i, I went down there and uh, it was a good school i mean they uh they pushed the students pretty hard i think and uh it wasn't an easy education, but it was fun. I enjoyed the whole thing, and I always liked learning, so didn't mind the the challenge. And uh, then after uh, after college, I went back for my master's. Uh, worked for Georgia Tech, so they paid for my master's, which was nice. And then uh, uh, I'd always planned to go back to work for Dad. And one day, in about I think it was 1986, he gave me a call and said, Are "You still interested in coming to work for me?" And I said yeah and he said well now would be a good time so i gave my notice and headed back to eminence and uh, started there in the sales department uh, initially for a couple of years i guess i got to meet all the customers get to know them well and then moved into manufacturing and learned everything i could from dad and then about 1993 or thereabouts he decided he was going to retire and do some traveling and he just suddenly retired and was not around anymore and we uh i'd ask him questions or try to pick his brain but he's like you guys know what you're doing now so you know you can figure it out so we were kind of on our own but uh, at that time uh you know the company was rolling pretty good we were uh, we were doing as you know in the mid 90s we were doing you know, six, 7,000 speakers a day, and business was just coming in as fast as we could handle it. So it was pretty easy start. What specifically enticed you about the, the kind of sound elements of speaker design? Was it just that you're, you'd been, in, you know, engulfed in it as a young kid and it was just part of you, or like, what was, yeah, I think what, why so. sound, and, I guess, and you why know, speakers? The music that was out when I was a kid was, uh, you know, I thought was, I guess every generation thinks the music that's out when they're young is the best music of all time, you know, but uh, Almond Brothers and, uh, you know, all that kind of music was just, I loved it. I couldn't play anything, but I loved the, the music and we were serving, you know, Eminence was serving uh, that industry, you know, the, that market. So 
um, that was interesting. And of course, there was there's a science and engineering aspect to it too, which I had always you know loved science and engineering. So uh, just seemed like a great fit and a you know opportunity for a career was there if I just wanted it. Dad wanted me to try uh, you know something else, work for somebody else first, and make sure that you really want to do this. He didn't want me to feel like I had been trapped into a family business or something. So I worked for Georgia Tech for a few years, and that was enough to satisfy that requirement and then was able to come back to my dream job. You mentioned that you could never play anything, but were you ever musically inclined at all? Did that pass the years? Yeah, I took, uh, took piano lessons when I was a kid, and I played trombone in high school. Uh, not the kind of... And the piano lessons were all like classical music and... I just didn't want to, mm. you know, wasn't that interested in that. I'm much more interested in classical music today than I was when I was a teenager. But uh, today I like, uh, you know, any kind of music that that sounds like uh, it would take a lot of talent to compose and to play um, on any instrument, uh, you know, especially guitar, though. I love guitar, and, and, and sometimes the things that, that artists can do on a guitar just mind-boggling really that they can do that and they make they do it and make it look easy so i'm still fascinated by that but i can't do it it takes a, a lot of investment in time and i haven't done that so. it does you give up the best part of yourself i think when you learn guitar being a guitar player yeah you're a player so, right <laughs> yeah i play yeah it's uh i like it i like it i'm kind of similar like i was into music and i was more of a player i guess rather than like yourself but it was definitely a part of that intrigued me in sound and acoustics and being surrounded by that as a kid definitely inspired me to, to to be more interested in that side of things. So I guess being like the CEO of such a big company in the loudspeaker market, like what what was that like? I know you touched on it initially, but in your in your previous response, but like like maybe it's more specific as we kind of go through the years of being a CEO, what what were the kind of things that you went through? You know, the fact that the company was doing well uh, was, you know, comforting. It uh, made decision, difficult decisions a lot easier to make when we were, in, you know, running financially very well. Um, and my dad, aside from teaching me uh, production process control and all that, um, he also, you know, taught me his business philosophy was basically always do the right thing. You know, basically just do the right thing. Kind of like the golden rule in the Bible. Um, it was uh, the all-encompassing base foundation rule for running a business. Just do the right thing. Stand behind the product. Treat uh, customers fair. Treat suppliers fair. Treat employees fair. And uh, so that makes it pretty easy to to make a lot of decisions that you have, even if they're difficult decisions, like uh, if we had a quality problem and, uh, you know, a customer needs to be taken care of, so you do what you have to do, no matter what the cost of it is. And uh, then what, what I learned was uh, when you do that, the customer respects you more and you end up getting more business. So there were occasions where, uh, we had a quality problem, and after it was all over with, uh, it seemed like we were better off for having had the quality problem than for if we hadn't had it at all. Like, uh, <laughs> once uh, 
Fender, uh, we made a bunch of speakers for Fender that had uh, paper bobbins. A lot of uh, guitar speakers will have a paper bobbin so that there's acoustic reasons why that, you know, gives it a sound that that's good for guitar. And um, we hadn't uh, cured the coils long enough at, you know, at the right temperature to fully cure the adhesive. So when you uh, played them at low, uh, low power, they were fine. But if you played them at a little bit higher power and warmed up that adhesive, it hadn't cured and cross-linked. So it would soften up and the coil would shuck right off the bobbin. And we discovered this. I can't remember the details, but I think we discovered it before Fender even discovered it. And we called them immediately and said, look, we want to recall that batch of speakers and explain the problem. And, uh, and then replaced them. And it was a pretty large batch. So uh, then we went, I went to a winter NAMM show shortly thereafter and met uh, Bill Schultz, who was running Fender at the time. And, uh, and I started apologizing for this problem we'd had, and he just interrupted me and says, no, 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 it's, uh, it's not the problem that we had, it's the way you guys responded to it. And, and so, you know, I walked away from that feeling like, wow, you know, it's a really good thing that we had that screw up, you know, <laughs> now they think we're even back. You know, so. <laughs> so, Bob, you mentioned that your, you know, your dad decided that he wanted to go traveling and then it was sort of next day you were CEO Mm -hmm. which is which is a role that not many people will take on particularly for a company like eminence is um what you know how did it feel initially when you took that role on i had seen him you know i was actually sharing an office with him for several years there and uh so i had watched him doing what he did and uh dad was a little bit of a benevolent dictator he um was really smart and uh always knew you know, had a lot of confidence in his decisions, a lot more than I would ever have. Um, but, you know, I saw how he did, ran the business. And uh, the only thing that I thought I would do different from him was not try to make all the decisions myself because I could see that it had gotten too big for one guy to do that. And um, I, I told myself, I'll never do that. But I did, in fact, uh, over the years kind of fell into the same mistake, I think, because um, maybe I was picky and uh, wasn't satisfied with, uh, you know, some of the solutions that people I delegated jobs to did. So I kind of just grabbed them and did it myself all too often. And uh, that that's a mistake. You really need to, you know, spend your time fostering the team and building the team and coaching the team, not uh, making all the decisions yourself. So that took me a long time to realize that mistake, but um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't feeling super pressured or anything when I first took over as CEO. I knew all the customers. They they felt like friends, you know, at the time. So uh, it was, it was a, you know, as a matter of fact, I can't complain about any part of my life from beginning to to now. It's it's all been a happy <laughs> experience and, and a fun ride, so. And it's not what, like 50 years ago? Um, and it's obviously started off small with just a few speakers um, a day. Mm -hmm. And now I think on the website it says it's ten thousand speakers a day. Um, what was the what was the process? How did that evolve? You know, how did you go from this small company to this huge? <laughs> My dad had been working for Magnavox. Um, I think he started working for Magnavox in about nineteen fifty six or something like that. 
and they had a speaker factory down in Paducah, Kentucky, but he wasn't run he wasn't there. He was uh in Fort Wayne and I think he was actually working, you know, like a microwave division or something. And um but they had this speaker factory down in Paducah, and they had some labor issues there, some strikes and stuff that were going on. So they uh, they decided to shut it down. I think it was about 1962. They shut the factory down. And then a year or two later, they reached a deal with a company called CTS, who used to be the, you know, primary supplier of speakers to U.S., uh, based speaker the former you know before eminence at one time eminence supplied everybody but before that cts and so they they reached a deal to sell the uh, the factory in paducah to cts and uh, part of the deal was they were going to loan uh, some of the managers to restart the factory and and operate it for a while until cts was ready to take over so dad and several of the co-workers there at uh, Magnavox commuted back and forth between Fort Wayne and Paducah, which I don't know what that is, probably about a four four or five hour drive weekly. And um, after about six months of that, CTS offered him and several other guys, uh, you know, full-time positions there. So he took over as, um, I don't know what his official title was, but basically he was uh, chief engineer at, uh, at that factory. And that factory was pretty vertically integrated. They made their own baskets and cones and voice coils and I don't know what, plates for the magnet structures and that kind of thing. So uh, so he was very familiar with not only the parts that most speaker manufacturers make, but the parts that they buy as well and how they were made. And, uh, and he was just a, a natural when it came to production. He could look at a, you know, got to make this part. He could figure out pretty quickly how to make it uh, cost effectively and you know consistently as simple as possible. That was his real um, contribution, I think. To and and so when um, when he started the factory in Kentucky, I think it was a little bitty place, like three thousand square feet or something like that, and. Uh, he built all the equipment himself, got it up and running, and he knew he could get a lot of business from Magnavox because of his uh, his relationship with them, and um, picked Eminence kind of because of it, it was geographically uh, located between close to Magnavox and some suppliers and other potential customers that he knew about. So. Started out pretty small, but I think within about two or three years, they were making around 3,000 speakers a day in that little bitty place. And uh, 3,000 speakers a day for one assembly line was a, was a good number. We we don't do that today on one assembly line. Um, they might have had a few more people on that assembly line. The speakers might have been a little simpler, but it was pretty good. And so about six years later, about around 1972, he built a larger facility uh, across on the other side of town and uh, moved over there. And business, because of his relationship with uh, engineering departments at a lot of potential customers, just kept coming in. And I think he was, because of his production engineering skills, 
we were able to produce at prices that were beating CTS's prices. So we were just gaining business rapidly. And so by the time, actually, there was a slow period after that. But while I was in college, they went through a little bit of a, I think it was an economic situation in America. And the speaker business uh, was slow. And they were working kind of off, off a week and on a week. But by the time I got back uh, or started there full time, uh, the economy had improved, and some of our com- competitors were uh, financially injured by that slow period, had borrowed too much or whatever, and uh, we were conservative during that period, so we came out of it in good shape, and just from the mid-'80s to 2000 or so, we were just picking up business. We, we basically could have taken on more if we felt we could swallow it fast enough, but you know, it took... 15, 20% growth a year was enough, we thought, to, to manage. And it just kept growing like that. You've massively ramped up um, production. But I suppose, how, how um, have you ensured that Eminence has re- remained um, relevant throughout the years, I suppose? We've still only supplied uh, a few markets, you know, in speakers. We don't... Uh, you know, predominantly right now we do uh, pro sound kind of speakers, musical instrument speakers, and we do some hi-fi, um, you know, some what I would call the crazy car speaker, car aftermarket. Um, we, we haven't really diversified into a lot of other products. For quite a while there, we did um, some products that are what I would call tactile transducers. They're, uh, one customer of ours was... Um, get hammer and they make a product called a butt kicker i don't know if you've ever heard of it but uh, they mount you know you can mount them to theater chairs or uh, a home theater couch whatever and uh, when the dinosaurs come in jurassic park you know you can feel them coming so <laughs> it's just an extremely low frequency transducer and we did some of them but uh, we've kind of stayed in our own niche which is uh, pro sound and musical instrument largely and then in the uh the car aftermarket, when a lot of those speakers were being made in America, and most of them are made in China now, um, but when a lot of them were being made in America, we picked up a lot of that business. So it got to be a third of our of our production for several years in the, between the mid-'80s and the, and the end of the 90s. And uh, But, you know, it's really just keeping up with the materials, the you know, improvements, the speaker basic design of a of a moving coil loudspeaker hasn't changed much since it was invented a hundred plus years ago. Uh, but the materials, you know, the, the magnet strength is so much stronger. You know, the neo magnets are, uh, are very light and very strong, scary strong and, uh, uh, cone materials, you know, are much stronger and lighter, um, voice coil adhesives, can handle a lot more temperature. Bobbin materials can handle more temperature, so you can pump more power into a speaker, and it can handle it, and without falling apart or even without distortion to a high degree, you know, high power level. So that's where most of the innovation has been. In the, and and honestly, I don't know that uh, that there's going to be any significant change in uh, in the basic design of a speaker for quite some time because you've got to move air and a moving coil loudspeaker is a 
I won't say it's an efficient way to do it because they're not terribly efficient. If you got, you know, maybe 10% efficiency would be a theoretical limit for a, a moving coil loudspeaker, but there's no more efficient way to do it that I'm aware of. And I don't, there obviously isn't yet, or, or they would have taken over. Moving coil loudspeakers would not be the thing they are. <laughs> so how's the R&D side of the business? What does it look like? Is it like a separate entity, or does it, is it just kind of evolved over the years? Like, what does it look like in Eminence, the actual division of that? Yeah, I mean, it's a department within Eminence, and uh, uh, typically... There's two things that they do in the R&D department at Eminence. One is uh, satisfy customer sample requests. If we've got OEM customers, that, let's say Fender wants a new guitar speaker, they'll contact the engineers and tell them the basic parameters that they want. It, you know, obviously the size and the impedance, and uh, something about the sound characteristics that they want out of it. They might be like. Uh, you know, this other model that we make for them, except they want it a little brighter or something, you know, that, however they want to communicate that. Uh, so that's one big set of the business. And the other is uh, basically designing products on speculation for a distribution market, um, music stores and um, music stores handle both musical instrument speakers and pro sound speakers for their, you know, the the house sound and uh, so we'll design speakers for for example um, a couple years ago we came out with our first 21 inch speaker and we weren't the first people to make a 21 inch woofer but I really think that the 21 inch woofer we came up with is the best one in the world right now it'll it'll, uh, there's a thing called volume displacement in loudspeakers that measures basically the total volume displacement that that speaker can produce, and it's the it's the largest of any speaker I know of in the world. So, when it comes to just pushing a lot of air for high power bass reproduction, it's kind of the master right now. So, we do that kind of thing, and then uh, you know, that nice. and satisfying customer requests. Some of our listeners are interested in getting into the field of like acoustics and R and D and. So what do you look for in terms of people that might work in that division of eminence or a speaker company in general, I guess? Um, an engineering degree would be good. You know, I, I took my bachelor's in physics, and when I phys- finished my physics degree, I realized, you know, I know a lot about the background of everything physical. You know, physics teaches you about the fundamentals of everything physical, but it doesn't tell you how to do much practical so in engineering, I said, I, when I get done with this bachelor's degree, i got to get an engineering degree so I know what to actually do something <laughs> with all this knowledge. Um, uh, electrical engineering uh, or mechanical engineering, material science, those kind of backgrounds would be excellent for uh, speaker design. And likewise for, um, you know, enclosure design and if you're an electrical engineer, amplifier design, and so forth, all the audio things. So uh, we've got, you know, people with uh, mechanical engineering degrees that are working in speaker design in R&D. Musical instruments are a little bit different. Uh, Most of the guys we've had in musical instrument speaker design are 
players, you know, guitar players, bass or lead. And um, typically, I guess they have good ears, not because their ears are, you know, more accurate, but because they've spent their life listening carefully because it's their passion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they hear things in a guitar speaker that uh, an engineer might not hear or care about. And, um, and a lot about musical instrument design, is, musical instrument speaker design is uh, an art more than a science. I mean, there is some science involved in it, but mixing and matching the different parts that you've got to work with to give you the sound that you want or to take the sound that this speaker has and figure out how you would have to adjust it to give you, you know, what you want. It's kind of an art and uh, it really just takes a lot of experience. And uh, so a lot of those guys that we've had doing musical instrument speaker design didn't have engineering backgrounds so much as they had several years of uh, building samples for other engineers and then kind of figuring out, you know, what it takes to do that tweaking and get the sound that they want. And they also have to be able to speak the language that guitar players speak. You know, when they they, they say, well, I want one that's got more crunch or something. Well, you got to know what they mean when they say crunch. And (laughs) some of those guys, uh, really, they understand exactly what they're looking for and how to do it in a speaker. And that's not something an engineer you know, you don't learn that in, at Georgia Tech. You know, what does crunch, how do you get crunch in your guitar speaker? <laughs> <laughs> when you're manufacturing speakers, um, especially for different markets like Pro Sound, guitar, um, they all have different requirements. And like, say if you're sending things overseas to be made to, you know, to be manufactured, how has that process been for getting the manufacturer that you're working with to understand how to make certain types of speakers certain ways and have you had difficulties through that process yeah one thing i can i can remember uh, specifically about when you asked about sending speakers overseas in uh, around 2000 late 1990s anyway a lot of our uh, the crazy car speaker market started to move their manufacturing over to china and we didn't mind that terribly because uh, they were traditionally not a very good paying customer. You know, that group of customers was poor pay and high maintenance. And so we thought, you know, kind of good riddance, you know, let them go to, uh, to China to get these crazy speakers that they want new designs every, uh, every six months and so forth. High labor intensive, you know, product too. But, um, Shortly after that, we started noticing some of our North American OEM, you know, pro sound and uh, musical instrument customers that were our real historical base uh, doing the same thing. They were they were shutting down production in North America, their own production, and finding contract manufacturers in China. So we our first thought was we need to find a partner in China that can build speakers for us and. Uh, we know the big players, you know, so maybe we can capture the business over there and, and feed it to our partner. So I started making trips to China and searching for them, and I went to literally hundreds of different speaker factories. There's, there's thousands and thousands of them in China. It's amazing. But um, 
they didn't really, most of them didn't seem to understand that anything other than that they're taking these parts like a cone and a coil and a magnet and plates and a frame and gluing them together. They didn't know what, how to choose the right parts to make a speaker that you want. And guitar speaker is a great example of that because a guitar speaker is, uh, produces a lot of distortion because it's supposed to, you know, um, a guitar speaker is as much a part of the instrument as, you know, the violin body is on, you know, Stradivarius violin. It's creating a lot of distortion, and that's what's the difference. You know, the string itself might vibrate in a pure tone, but it excites all these harmonics in the wood, and the, the shape of the wood's important, the thickness of the wood, the type of wood, all these things are important to give it the harmonic content that makes it sound pretty, you know. If it was just a bunch of sine waves, uh, I don't think we'd be listening to a lot of music. It'd be kind of boring, right? Uh, guitar, guitar. It's, it's uh, the only pure way to listen to music, I think. Yeah, a, a, a lead guitar, you know, has got all kinds of distortion in it, and a bunch of that comes from the speaker. And you got to put the right parts together to get the distortion you want. You can make a speaker that distorts, you know, much worse. It's not going to sound good. You know, have to know the right. It's got to get the right distortion. So. So we, uh, when we were trying to find a partner in China, we decided we'll send them guitar speakers because guitar speakers are notoriously hard to match. If you want to match, you know, a Celestian Vintage 30 speaker and get the same sound of it, it's not easy to do. Very difficult, especially to a mm -hmm. discerning guitar player. You know, they're going to hear every little difference. So we, we started sending guitar speakers over there, and some of them would send back things that were like a hi-fi woofer with a foam edge and, you know, thick bodies and all this, and tell, them, tell us, uh, well, we fixed your uh, distortion problem in the speaker that you sent us. You know, this is much better speaker. So they didn't, they just didn't get it. Um, <laughs> eventually, we decided to start our own factory because we, you know, we could see we, uh, we know what we're doing. You know, they don't necessarily know what we're doing. And if we found a partner, eventually, we'd just be a middleman anyway. So we decided in 2006, we started our own factory over there and um, spent a lot of time, you know, in preparation and going back over there, getting it going good, training the people. And um, from the beginning, we tried to treat our employees there like we do in Kentucky, like a family. You know, we, we really care about the employees and people would tell us, including my partner at the time in that factory we had a partner from uh, from taiwan and he's like this is ridiculous you can't you know the chinese people don't they won't understand that you know they don't they're not used to a factory owner you know working on the line with them if they want to or things like that you know fix a machine don't do that you know it's not appropriate in china so um but eventually it we did manage to do that and uh I'm I'm proud of that, and I give a lot of credit to the management that we've got in the factory over there now, who believed that we could do that. But um, you know, teaching them to understand why a guitar speaker is distorted in a particular way it just takes a lot of time. Um, giving them examples, you know, the Western music's not that popular in China, so they've got a lot. You know, you hear. The Chinese instruments, it's not like uh, lead guitar or anything. They they had to learn it, but, you know, you give them enough time and 
attention, and they, they eventually get it. So China really has changed a lot in the last uh, uh, 10 years. It's, uh, they have come a long way, not just our factory there, but um, uh, all the Chinese speaker factories are much better than they were 15 years ago. They're, they're becoming, just like it happened in Japan, I guess, with automotive manufacturers. There used to be junk, right? Everybody thought it was everything that came from Japan was junk, and now it's very high-quality stuff. Well, China's moving in the same way, becoming very, you know, very difficult to compete with. Is that your fault then, Rob, for making it so good? <laughs> no, it's our customers' fault. We, you know, we wanted to keep building speakers in Kentucky, and uh, and we have been able to do that. But um, yeah, it was you know, it's the market. The market's always going to be driven to lower cost. They, you know, nobody wants to pay more for something if they can get it for less. Uh, the the challenge, I guess, is to keep the quality up. You know, and while you're trying to drive the cost down. And we saw some of our customers, unfortunately, uh, sell to, you know, the brand owner, you know, like that founded the company, sells it to some uh, investment group who is really just a bunch of accountants. And uh, when I was a kid, all this, all the customers that we had seemed like they were like usually failed musicians or not failed musicians, but musicians who weren't mm -hmm. going to make a really big uh, living as a musician, but they liked, you know, repairing amps and that kind of thing. So they saw I can make my own people like Hartley Peavy, you know, um, mm -hmm. he wanted to play, but wasn't good enough, but he knew how to fix amps and stuff. So eventually he just made his own company and it grew like gangbusters. So, um, but then it's kind of changed over the years. A lot of those guys have sold, not Hartley, thank goodness, he's still got his own company, but uh, some of the others have sold off to these investment groups and just care about the dollar. And I've seen, I've seen them kind of ruin some great uh, brands just trying to get as much money as they can out of it and not, not really having a passion for the the music anymore. Well, people notice, don't they? Like the customers start to notice that. They, they definitely do. Yeah. Deteriorate, and the customers just don't. They just don't buy them anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a shame when that happens. It but is. Kudos to Eminence for not doing. When you're designing speakers, testing must be a huge part of that process, and you make some enormous monsters. You just said about the 21-inch beast. Mm -hmm. So, like, what's that been like dealing with more of the environmental aspects of the, the, the sound that you generate during that testing process? You must have some serious facilities to, to do that testing. And Yeah, well, you, uh, you always have an anechoic chamber so that you can uh, point the speaker into this chamber, and what it represents is... Uh, is an infinite space. You know, you just the anechoic chamber is there to absorb all the sound that the speaker is putting out so that it's not reflecting back, you know, at, and reverberating in that in that space. So you can kind of measure the speaker by itself uh, without the room effects. Um, so we've got anechoic chambers. Um, uh, there's a company called Klippel, uh, Wolfgang Klippel in Germany has made a really amazing uh, instrument uh, distortion analyzer that not only, it, it can basically put a microphone right close to the speaker in the near field 
and um, play particular tones through it. And it, it measures the distortion and it also kind of miraculously tells you where the source of the distortion is. And it's, you know, things like nonlinearity in the uh, uh, magnetic field or the uh, suspension, you know, the compliance is nonlinear. Uh, maybe asymmetric uh, pulls in more on the outstroke than it does on the downstroke, that kind of thing. It's a pretty remarkable uh, machine, and it helps if you're, especially if you're designing a uh, professional sound reinforcement speaker, and the goal is minimum distortion at high power. That uh, an that distortion analyzer has been a real, a real plus, and uh, they've, I guess, they've been around for probably. Time flies, 15 or 20 years now, but they're becoming pretty commonplace. A lot of people have them. Um, power test facility is another thing that you have to have because a lot of the speakers nowadays are put in some pretty demanding app, like that uh, 21 inch I'm talking about. It. Uh, I'd be honest with you, I'm not even sure what the uh, the continuous power handling is on that. I think it's like maybe 4,000 watts continuous and um, that makes wow. a lot of noise so you've got if you're going to test it like that for you know maybe you're going to test it at, at level for a hundred hours you know you better have a place that's not going to disturb you don't put it outside or your neighbors will come kill you um, so recently we built <laughs> a new, neighbor yeah <laughs> uh, we built a new power test facility within our factory and it's basically a concrete bunker you know dense concrete will absorb a lot of that low frequency it won't absorb at all but uh, keeps it to a level where you can you know tolerate it in the factory and uh, so kind of like a bomb you know a, <laughs> a bomb shelter or something it, as a matter of fact it's a great place to go if there's tornadoes in the area that's one of our uh, one of our designated uh, storm shelters is go to the power test facility because it's solid concrete and uh, and thick and heavy. So, uh, what else do we do with, uh, in the anechoic chamber? Of course, you measure some of the characteristics that are important to measure with uh, with all speakers is the uh, amplitude versus frequency curve. Uh, we call it SPL curve, sound pressure level curve. Uh, that and the distortion and the impedance curve. So there's instruments to commonplace now for measuring all those characteristics. And then there's a, a set of uh, parameters that um, were first specified by a couple guys in, uh, in Australia, Teal and Small. Uh, the Teal Small parameters help mm -hmm. you to design cabinets that, that are appropriate for a particular speaker or conversely, uh, help you figure out what parameters, what teal small parameters will be appropriate for a given cabinet. Yeah, I, I recall the teal and small parameters we'd covered at a university. And I remember Eminence created, it was like a little free bit of software that when you bought one of the speakers, we were making, me and my dad were making pro audio PA speakers and uh, we used that to design the box that it mm -hmm. came in and that was really cool. Like that was, at the time, it was the only speaker manufacturer that was really giving that out for you to mm -hmm. be more of a DIY creator. So that was really cool. What was what was that like creating that and why? what brought that around? That was a product, we called it Eminence Designer and it was actually a software written by 
somebody named Harris. I think the the company name was Harris Tech, and we just kind of I don't know what you call that uh, white label or whatever. You know, you had them write a version, you know, for us, and we populated it with a lot of uh, the parameters for a lot of different eminent speakers that were in our catalog. Uh, you know, line so that uh, you could just select them and not have to enter all those parameters. So it's, yeah, it's really good to have something like that. If you're a DIY guy and you want to build a cabinet, you need a program like that. Yeah, when that program came up, it was like, let's just try this. And they sounded great. Like, it was it was fantastic. And we could, like, test different speakers out and see what, you know, the DB curves look like. And it was, mm-hmm. it was fantastic to, to have that tool for free as well. It was quite cool. One thing that's on my mind when speaker manufacturers are now moving into the kind of impulse response scene and like, you know, using digital models of their speakers to go into like, say, guitar plugins or whatever to represent and make them sound more realistic. So what's that side of the business been like? And was that just you felt Eminence had to do it because everyone else was doing it? Or like, what what do you see the benefits of impulse response? I think line six... uh Back in the uh, mid-80s, I think, maybe, they, they came up with the, was the Axis 212 modeling amp, and I think that was the very first amp, and it, um, or the first modeling amp. I think it just um, had a specific set of, of uh, cabinets that it uh, modeled and, and speakers that it modeled, and uh, you could then also apply uh, some pedal you know effects uh, in this in the same software but it wasn't general purpose like uh, you know some of the modeling amps today uh, you can put any impulse response you want in there and basically uh, take a a signal straight from your guitar and convolute it with the impulse response and get the sound that you would have if you had that amp, you know, mic'd that same way uh, without having the amp and then change to another amp on the next song if you want. So just a lot more versatile. Um, I, I think it, I think it makes good sense. I, you know, there are certain purists that are, that are always going to want to have the real amp uh, mm-hmm. with the real speaker and everything there. But uh, one of the things that's different about the speakers for a modeling amp is, um, it's, you know, all the distortion that, that the speaker and everything else in the you know, amplifier has has produced is all modeled in digital signal processing and not, you don't want the speaker, again, adding distortion like a guitar speaker, although that first, you know, <laughs> Axis 12, 212 uh, cabinet was basically just a guitar speaker and a whole lot of them that they make today are, guitar speakers, but I think the, mm-hmm. the right way to do that would be, uh, you know, flat response, you know, full range speaker, at least as full range as, you know, any tone that the guitar amp is going to produce any harmonic content and uh, so that it can faithfully reproduce the distorted signal that you're creating in the digital signal processing. Pretty neat, uh, neat idea, and uh, yes. I think it's going to really be point. popular for yeah. a long time. What do you think makes a good speaker? Like, I know it has different, you know, different audiences and stuff for different types, but like, what do you think makes things good? Like, what's, what do you go to drive for? That is a 
a difficult question, and it, uh, I mean, I, I can remember uh, probably hundreds of times in my career at Eminence having a customer call. You know, usually this is a startup customer that's not, you know, they, they think they're going to create the next greatest speaker, you know, that the public's going to buy. And they'll call and say, well, I want the best speaker that you make. Well, that, that depends on what you want it for. You know, a guitar speaker is entirely different from a pro sound speaker. And, you know, and if you're just looking at pro sound speakers, um, some are, you know, cost is not a real uh, factor. It's, you know, how much output can you make this speaker? How much sound pressure level can this speaker produce in this frequency range um, regardless of the cost? Or or maybe it's the other end of the spectrum where, you know, we got, you know, $15 we can put in the speaker and we want as much output as we can get out of that. So it depends on what your, you know, what your goal is. I know that's a sound like a cop-out answer, but it really depends so much on <laughs> on the application and you know the goal of that application more than you, you can't just say what's a great speaker you know it's it's too hard to yeah, answer. Yeah, no, I, I know. <clears throat> it kind of leads me on to the next question, which is like when you're mass producing speakers, how how careful do you have to be, and what safeguards do you have to put in place, and do you do you throw a lot away initially when the company was growing, or is it you know what was that like? How how have you got to be such a big mass producing speaker? We still throw away more than uh, than we'd like, uh, you know. But consistency is the most important thing. I think when you're mass producing speakers, you've got to be able to produce the speaker. You know, if it's model, you know X Y Z, you want to produce X Y Z so that it's got the same SPL, same power handling. You know, batch after batch after batch and. Uh, I think that's another place where the Chinese used to be horrible, and some of them probably still are horrible, and they've gotten they've gotten a lot better. Uh, but that's that's probably maybe the single most difficult thing in the speaker business is figuring out how to uh, how to make them consistently. And speaker cones are probably the most the single component that's most responsible for the sound that the speaker produces and and coils would be the second most important and so cones that's a bunch of black magic in itself too they uh, the cone manufacturers fortunately have been doing it for some of them at least the ones that we use have been doing it for a long time and they know what it takes to get consistent results and then We've got the instruments and the ears, you know, in our factory to evaluate whether they're consistent. And uh, depending on the speaker that it's going in and the, and the history that we've had with that cone, we may take uh, speakers when they or cones when they arrive and actually build up a like a control reference speaker using a cone from that batch to evaluate it and make sure that it's close because if it's not, you know, you're going to make a whole bunch of speakers that the customer's not going to be happy with and it'd be better to reject the cone batch than uh, have them reject the, the batch of speakers. Um, so cone, you know, consistency is really critical and uh, uh, for that reason, 
we still, I don't think we use any cones that are manufactured in China. There's a gobs of cone manufacturers there and they might be good, but we just haven't got the level of confidence in them that, uh, that it takes. So uh, in America, there's, let's see, really only three uh, cone factories left and uh, two of them are owned by the same guy and they're about to merge into one facility, but he really knows what he's doing. Uh, the people that work there know what they're doing and we're confident that he's going to be able to move production of the cones that come. It's funny that that, that factory that I'm talking about that they're about to shut down is in the same building that the CTS factory was in in Paducah, Kentucky when my dad was at CTS, the same exact building. But uh, they're going to move, that's Holly Products, and they're going to move there. And they're actually with a company that invented uh, molded cones. Uh, like a hundred years ago, but uh, they're going to move their uh, facility and consolidate it at a rapid dye molding up in uh, Wisconsin, which is one of the other speaker manufacturer cone factories that's left in America. And then the uh, the other one is uh, loudspeaker components, which is a stone's throw away from RDM rapid dye in uh, Wisconsin. But those guys, all of them, really know what they're doing. They've had uh, like paper engineers uh, working for them, you know, college degree, PhD, paper uh, engineers, you know, material sciences that, uh, that know how, you know, what makes a difference in, uh, in how you take these components or materials and turn them into a speaker cone and how to get it consistent and thank goodness that they do because there's a lot of black magic there and we're we don't make our own cones at Eminence. Uh, I kind of wanted to when we, when we started our factory in Dongguan because uh, my father was still living and he knew a lot about cone manufacturing and we had a, uh, another engineer that worked for us that had worked at a cone factory and knew a lot about it. But I couldn't get my uh, my partner at the time interested in you know, cone manufacturing and after we had produced for two or three years there, we kind of missed our opportunity. We had an opportunity when we started, but because it's hard to match a cone, we already had a lot of cones in the in the tool, you know, in the the toolkit, so to speak. And it was a little late to start one then. But you know, cones are real important. Coils, we do make our own coils, and uh, coils are a lot easier to be consistent with, though, because the uh, the wire is made very consistently. No matter where you get it, you can get really consistent wire material and, and dimensions and uh, if you wind the same number of turns with the same diameter wire and use the same adhesives and the same uh, bobbin material you know that you're winding it on you can get very consistent coil results and you get those two things together get them right and uh, not a whole lot else that can go wrong sound wise usually some kind of adhesive mistake so I think it's time to dive into a beer. I know you've been right, waiting for one, Rob, urgently. And you, just... you got it. It's my £4.50 beer, this. £4.50. Wow. And what is it? <laughs> um, it, is, it is actually... Um, it's a Raspberry Berliner Weisse, which is brewed in Liverpool. Oh. And... You guys can see it there. Mm-hmm. 
just, I know karate. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know karate voodoo too, which I've not had before, which I'm looking forward to. What have you guys got? I've got a, a Kolsch uh, from Schlafly Breweries here in somewhere in the United States. I'm not sure where it is, but that's a you know Kolsch uh, variety of beer, which is real crisp and uh, and clean tasting. I kind of like nice. IPAs usually, but uh, and I've got some got some IPAs I'll probably get into later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I've got a white IPA called the Electric Unicorn by Phillips Brewery. <laughs> <laughs> I love this craft brewery uh, revolution that we've got going on right now. It's amazing. Like, yeah. yeah. Look at the color of this. <laughs> it's like yeah. pink. <laughs> Might get an umbrella in it. <laughs> so, I'll be talking about. You might get into the. Might get into the rest of your IPA later. I suppose yeah. the question is, what is the plan for the future? What you know? What? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm. Uh, I'll be 62 at the end of this year, and um, you know, I already mentioned my mistake of. Uh, trying to make too many decisions myself. So the last few years I've been trying to to back off and uh, went back when I was uh, traveling back and forth from China like six times a year. Every other month I was going to China for two to, you know, two to four weeks and um, trying to manage both factories and I thought I was going to go crazy for a while. So I think it was maybe 2009, uh, somewhere along in there, I asked Chris Rose to become the president that had been my title and I said won't you be the president you manage the China, the uh, Kentucky factory and I'll keep you know running back and forth to China and um, also I, I decided at that time to take on uh, compliance with environmental regulations which are becoming a bigger thing all the time you know when you're manufacturing you've got to meet all these uh, environmental regulations, and you've got to uh, also worry about uh, you know occupational hazards to your workers and stuff. And we didn't have anybody that was full time in that at the time, so I kind of took that on and managing the Chinese factory, and uh, we got into making cabinets over there too at the time because our uh, some of our OEM customers that had found contract manufacturers in China weren't very happy with the quality of the products they were getting, and they said, "Why don't you guys make cabinets too?" So we uh, we contracted with a uh, a guy in um, where is he in um, Malden, England, uh, Straight Edge Manufacturing, uh, Ian Wilson. He uh, and his guys, uh, what we did was we made a, a deal with them. You teach us how to build cabinets, and any business that you bring to the Dongguan factory and cabinet business, we will basically sell it to you at cost. And um, so they, they really did teach us how to build cabinets. I think we, matter of fact, I think Ian once said uh, the cabinets that are coming out of our factory in China were every bit as good, if not better, than what they were making in their English factory. So he'll, he'll deny that if you mention it to him, but uh, we make a very, a very high quality cabinet. It's not, uh, not the, the cheapest cabinet you can get, but it's really, you know, high quality. But 
you know, I'm about 62 now, and uh, Dad was maybe a year or two older than that, I think, before he decided he was going to, you know, take some time off. So I think uh, I'm looking maybe towards the end of the year to slow down and uh, start doing a little more traveling with my wife while we're still both, you know, healthy enough to do get out and do things, uh, play more golf, that kind of stuff. She picked up golf a few years ago, so we'd have something else to do and going to do more of it. So... Where, where are you gonna Where are you gonna go to, Rob? I'm guessing it's not China. Well, no. If I ever did, if I could go to China and do something other than work, I would because there's lots of sightseeing to do there. <laughs> I've only done that, you know, twice really. I went to see the Great Wall briefly, and and uh, a town called Guilin, which is uh, you've ever seen the Chinese paintings with the mountains that go straight up and down. That's what that landscape looks like, and I got to go there and. The, that was you know, really fantastic. And there's so many more places in China to see, but there's so many more places in America to see or in North America. So I just, uh, I think we'll spend some time just tooling around uh, the United States and see things we haven't seen. We've been living here our, you know, our whole lives and a lot of it we haven't seen. So I think everywhere in the world there's a fantastic... So is it the case of getting an RV and then driving across the states kind of thing? Not an RV. We're uh, we're more hotel people. We don't want to have to keep, you know, clean up our own room after... <laughs> clean it out. <laughs> yeah, we're lazy. Lazy travelers. <laughs> nice warm hotel and that kind of thing. But uh, there's everywhere that I've been in the world, and I've had the fortune to, to be to a lot of them, there's, um, there's beautiful places everywhere, so... Anywhere I could go and see it and play golf there. I was going to say, in, in, I mean, around the world, Kentucky's known pretty much for one thing. Um, I don't know if you know this, Dan and I don't eat meat. Would, no. would we struggle to eat in Kentucky? <laughs> <laughs> what vegetable do you eat in Kentucky? I don't know, asparagus, <laughs> yeah, lettuce, tomatoes, that kind of thing. Um, Kentucky fried vegetables. Both of you guys are, are vegetarian, then. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't do yeah. that. I would, I was, uh, I would call myself a total carnivore, you know, most of my life. But I'm an omnivore now, and uh, you know, I, I'm enjoying vegetables more. But I'm still a meat meat eater for sure. <laughs> now, now you said Kentucky's yeah. only known for one one thing. Now, what would you say that that is? Because I think there's two or three things. Chicken. No, yeah, chicken is one of them. What about bourbon? <laughs> Bourbon uh, making. Oh, that's true. Oh, yeah. 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 Sorry, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> and horse racing is, uh, you know, that maybe it's not as famous in uh, mm. England as uh, it is in America, but Kentucky's kind of known as a horse racing state here. And the derp, you know, Kentucky Derby and all that. Yeah. But those are the three things. After that, there's really not much. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I'm the, trying to um, think if Liverpool's famous for anything other than the Beatles. I mean, I had some friends come stay, and they—I remember they came off the train, and in the station, it was playing, um, you know, "I Want to Hold Your Hand" or something, and they were like, "Oh, that's quaint." And then we were walking <laughs> through the city centre, and all the shops were playing Beatles songs, and then we got on the on the. Um, on the ferry and it's playing ferry across the <laughs> they're like does Liverpool have anything else apart from this and I'm like what else does it need <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah <laughs> I think I was in Liverpool once 
just for dinner with some uh, with our distributors from England. But didn't see Penny Lane. <laughs> now I I, I I once went to I guess I was going up to Straight Edge to Malden, but I had flown in with um, Paul Stevens, uh, who's now let's see I think. Trying to remember who he's working for now. He's Trace Elliott for a while, but um, he was telling me about Marconi, is based in the town where he's living. Yeah. What town is that now? Because I would love to go there sometime and see the Marconi factory and museum and all that. Well, I'm sure that Marconi was in Liverpool for a bit. I love the the uh, history of you know technology that's uh that's fascinating too so I, if i could i could spend the time of you know my retirement going to museums and seeing stuff like that because that just fascinates me i kind of wanted to make an, an eminence uh museum but i haven't had the time to get around to it and we don't really have enough stuff to keep many people interested but we got some <laughs> something interesting happened a couple of years ago um we had a a, a a little concert locally to to raise funds for something it was like a it was a, a cancer, um, can't remember the name of the uh, cancer, you know, charity right now, but we were raising funds for that. Had a concert there in town, and the guy who owned the property where we had the concert came up in the middle of, of the concert and said um, he had something to present to me. And he had moved into the house in Eminence that the banker, when we first moved to town, lived in. And my dad had given... The banker, I guess he got one of his first loans for him to start the company. He had given him the speaker that was our first speaker we ever built at Eminence. And he found it in the attic of his house. <laughs> and it had written on the back of it, you know, uh, Eminence speaker number, you know, speaker number one or something. And my dad had signed it and he, he presented it back to us. So we got that for our museum. That was pretty cool. It was a little beat up, but a piece cool. of history just the same. So you must have some cool stories, Rob, of like people, like music musicians and artists that have been a bit wacky and crazy and that you've had to work with and deal with. A lot of these, you know, the musicians are, um, if they're if they're really uh, well known, I'm I'm almost uh, I'm shy around them. I, I don't. First of all, I don't want to like <laughs> be a, a an annoying fan, you know. So I don't do that. But but all the. You know, artists that I've gotten to know, uh, really friendly guys, and some of them that, uh, you know, that you'd think are kind of outrageous uh, from their reputations and stuff are really, you know, just their regular guys. When you get to talk to them, you know, privately, they, I remember, um, I can't even remember who the artist was, but when I was at the NAMM show, what I used to do was go by and, and get our customers and uh, and take them out for a beer, you know, at lunch or something, and uh, kind of what we're doing now. And uh, Gary, Gary Sunda from um, from Randall was one of my favorite guys to go pick up. And so I, I went to this booth one time, and he's talking to this guy that looked like uh, Cousin It from the Monsters, you know, just hair, like straight down <laughs> over his face and everything. And I'm like, who was that guy? And he told me who it was, and I, I recognized the name, but... You know, some artist, and he said, "He's just a regular guy." You know, it's just that's his stick. You know that he, that's his that's his uh, persona, but he's a regular guy. <laughs> Before we had this 
call us. I mentioned to Dan something. I mean, something we don't really generally talk about. But but Dan and I both our dads work in the industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as as does yours. My, my, my dad's a physicist. Oh yeah, <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Partly the reason we started this whole podcast out was because both of us are quite passionate about acoustics, all elements acoustic. We we don't know much about lots of it, but we mm. but we really find it interesting talking to people who know a lot about it, and that's why the focus is generally you know what the background is because it's interesting that you know once you get into you think God that's a job that's really interesting. I just think it's one of those things that I think more people would be interested in it if they knew it was a job that existed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of them are failed musicians. You mentioned before, but we, I mean, I work in environmental acoustics. Nearly all of them are failed musicians just because. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah. A bit like that. Well, really. I tell you what, it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a blessing to, uh, to be able to work in a field that was, you know, interesting work and, uh, and enjoyable work. I've, I've really, uh, you know, if I, I, I couldn't have picked a job. Maybe if I was could be a professional golfer and I was good enough to do that and make a living at it, it would be better. But uh, other than that, I can't really think of anything I would more rather do for making a living. And a lot of people don't have that luxury of uh, being able to make a living doing what they love to do. And that's, that's a real blessing. Yeah. And I was, my parents, I guess I was fortunate to have been born you know, into a family that had a speaker factory so that I, I could have a free job there. <laughs> yeah, it helps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was funny. It was before you, when you were talking about like the anecdote chamber, one of my earliest memories is, um, my, not my earliest memories, but I do have a memory, is that my mum used to palm a sister, I've got a twin sister, a twin sister, me on my dad, and we'd go to um, the acoustic research unit in Liverpool University and he'd stick us in the anechoic chamber <laughs> <laughs> and um, sometimes I'd run out and switch the lights off and close the door and leave my sister in there. <laughs> Which, if anyone's ever been in a coat chamber with the lights off, is. Um, it's creepy. Isn't it? is, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was working at Georgia Tech, we had a microwave in a coat chamber, which was really big. And, uh, you know, it's just basically the same thing as an acoustic in chamber, but the. Uh, the cones that they had in there were like filled with carbon or something that would absorb the microwave radiation in the same way that the cones physically absorbed uh, sound. But it was also pretty effective uh, uh, acoustic anechoic chamber as well, just because full of cones and uh, big ones. And we would work in there for hours at a time, and sometimes you just have to get out, you know, because it starts to become <laughs> annoying that you, you don't get any feedback, you know. From reflections around yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything, so your mind's <laughs> thinking like something's not right here. You know, <laughs> I need a break. It screws with you. Like I remember doing like university projects, and you're in there for hours and hours and hours, and you come outside and hear a car go past, and it's like, whoa, mm-hmm. what the hell was that? Like it's just yeah. like it's so quiet, and there's no echo. It's just so unnatural that it's just crazy. And it was interesting, George. You mentioned about like our dad's doing noise and stuff and yeah my dad was involved in more of the environmental noise side of things and kind of did the the, like training just as I was doing it so he was kind of copying me in a way and I I still I still persevered in like you know through all the troubles and being associated with him I was still able to break through and actually still be able to do what I do so it was was quite good I hope he listens to this Dan (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll send him just that bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting. Like, I think it's clearly rubbed off on you, Rob, that your dad was so passionate about sound, physics, acoustics, and it's created one of the, yeah, one of the leading companies. in. It's in kind field. of funny that uh, I don't think he was as passionate about sound as he was about production. It was kind of right. an accident that he got into sound he always liked uh, figuring out how to make things and like when i i built a house when i moved back to kentucky and he helped me you know do a lot of construction so it had uh, cedar or not cedar but redwood siding on it and he literally made a machine that we could feed the uh, the siding through before we put it up to stain both sides of it and seal it real quick you know like just as fast as you could spit them through there, it was coating them, and you know he made a machine. He'd do that kind of thing, you know, as long as I can remember. He always was making something to make your job easier. And I guess more uh, an engineer than yeah. yeah, he always uh, said, you know, uh, lazy is the mother of invention. So <laughs> you, you, know, you want to do it easier? Make some kind of tool or machine to make it easy for you well rob it's been great to catch up with you and dive into all of your stories and what you've been doing over the years and really appreciate it so thanks for coming on and having a chat it's been fun thank you all for having me yeah good. yeah for, for those who are new here feel free to subscribe and drop a comment below with any questions or suggestions for topics that would be fantastic but we will uh, see you next time thanks so much